We've come back to this place for the joy, for the wonder, for the excitement. We come here to feel joy, sadness, love, fear, triumph. We come here to think and to have our minds challenged. When the image is framed to perfection, when the sound envelops you, when the music begins to soar, we take flight to go somewhere new, to remember where we came from, to imagine where we can go. Because in a place like this, everything feels right. Why did it have to be snakes? Get in, loser. We're going shopping. all right? Yep, two corpses. Everything's fine. I'm your huckleberry. Get away from her, you bitch. Are you not entertained? I'm going to make them an Oh, no. Eat your stuff. Oh, eat your stuff. I'll have what she's having. Hi, welcome to another episode of In a Place Like This. I'm Chris Michael Smith, joined today by Shane Anderson. Hello, hello, hello. This is like I don't kind know, I of... just did the drag races. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this is... You would be the first person who's been on this podcast uh, for three episodes. Three? Oh, that's right, because I did, the, the, I did the, the top ten of the year one. Yeah, that was a fun one. I did enjoy doing that. That was good. That was good. I love, I love, I love doing like favorites lists, especially when you can like include something that people don't know and then try and get them to watch it. Yeah. And honestly, some of the ones that you mentioned on your list ended up like I watched after the fact and they were really good. Nice. Nice. I love it. I love it. My boyfriend and I, we watched um, the Defunct Land one together. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, wait, is it the one about the, the, the Disney tune? The do-do-do-do-do. And the, the yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It was so good. It was amazing. I loved it. I kind of really loved the the one two sort of surprise at the end, where like it becomes something so much more than just like a silly investigation. And I was like, oh, it was, it was, it took me by a surprise that one. Yeah, like I like most of that guy's stuff too. Like on top of just that one getting getting so emotional at the end, like really surprised me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, to listeners at home, I am having dinner, so if you hear some awkward chewing noises, that is me. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's food. All right, so uh, our audience, if they've been following us, they do know a little bit about you already, but is there anything else you'd like to share with us about yourself? Or uh, Oh, not, not too much. I'm a filmmaker from Australia, a, a writer and director primarily. If I could get away with not writing, I would, but no one writes the scripts I want to make, so I have to begrudgingly write stuff as well. Um, and podcaster as well. I, I had a, an old podcast several years ago that I it finished. It, it didn't go. It didn't do too well. But I've started a new one as well. So relatively on the same sort of topics of film and television. And I, I've already listened to the first episode of that. I really enjoyed that. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's called One Season Wonders. I guess we'll do a proper spruik of it or something later on. But it's, it's all about television shows that got cancelled after one season. I try and like uh, interview some of the people who made them. So it's like a, a production history instead of, because I tried to look at the landscape and a lot of it's like, there are several shows about one season shows, but most of them are like either a watch along review. So they watch a show and review and each episode is reviewing one or, or a couple of episodes. And then each of their seasons is a different show or um, their review episodes where just the episode is a reviewing the whole show. Whereas mine sort of, I look at the production and broadcast history um, look at where the people ended up, why it got cancelled, because not everything's just, I mean, a lot of them are 
the audience didn't show up and so the ratings were bad and it got cancelled. But there's a couple of very fascinating shows that got canned for very interesting reasons um, that I want to dive into as I go into the show. So, And I put an interview with some people who were there, which that's my <laughs> my little unique twist on, on the format, I guess. The first episode, I'm looking forward to the second one too. Like that's going to be releasing on Wednesday, I believe, um, at yes. the time of this recording, which might coincide with the release date. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> Uh, depending on when I release that, that would be Wednesday the, um, I don't know what day. 15th. The 15th. And that's... Well, Wednesday, Wednesday Australia time, which I think actually equates to American Tuesday evening. 14th here in the States. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're ahead. We're, we're from the future <laughs> down here in this country. Yeah. I know um, you answered this question la- on the last episode, but let's see if it's changed at all. Uh, what is your favorite movie? Oof. Do you know what? It was, I think in the last time it was um, the one, because the, it, it was Everything Everywhere All at Once, because I think we just watched that one. And that is basically one of my all-timers. But lately, my favourites list kind of fluctuates depending on my mood. And at the moment, I'm, I'm back in a Pan's Labyrinth uh, mood, which is that's, that, like, that would either be my number two or my number one pick. So Yeah, so. That, that, one's, that one is a really good one. Yeah, yeah, and Guillermo del Toro it, in general is just we we are yeah. going to probably be discussing one of his movies later on in this episode too. Yeah, yeah, he's my favorite filmmaker of all time, just without question. Absolutely amazing, Pinocchio last year. Oh my god, oh, it destroyed so me. And uh, before we start our episode, is there anything else you would like to briefly geek out about? Oh gosh, um, oh I've been listening to Karina Longworth's. Um, she does a podcast. Uh, you must remember this about Hollywood history. And I've been behind and I've just catching up on her erotic 90s season, which is just sublime. She's a huge influence actually on my podcast. I sort of, there's a lot lifted from how she structures, how she presents her podcast in the way I do One Season Wonders, just because I just love that format. I could listen to it. I do listen to it pretty much every day. So her erotic 90s series, she's sort of charting sex in the late century cinema from the 80s to the 90s and then why we sort of fell off a cliff with sex in the cinema and we're sort of currently in the most sexless era of cinema and she's using this series to sort of talk about that and it's absolutely fascinating i'm seeing all sorts of stuff and we'll probably touch on a couple of those films in this because the noir genre and the erotic thriller genre uh, overlap in huge ways yeah i was actually gonna name drop that podcast later <laughs> <laughs> like as like talking about body heat later on so yes yeah. yes oh that was such it was such a good podcast though like the, both the 80s and 90s that was like yeah every season she's done is i'm my, one of my personal favorites she did one called mgm stories that i thought was really good and she did ones about um like joan crawford like there is not a weak season but i think one of her best ones because not only is it like her usual technical and incredible sort of writing skill but um it was just so deeply profound was the polly platt the invisible woman season about Polly Platt, who is sort of like a producer, production designer, sort of multi-hatted person who sort of no one really knew her in the way that they knew a lot of the famous people she associated with, like Peter Bogdanovich. But her story is incredible. And that season just sort of blew me away. That's sort of like high art to me. What is it? The... uh stuff that dreams are made of. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? 
I don't know, it's funny looking. I don't know about you, but I'm having a ball. You kind of like, I, I was going to make my own outline for this, and then you kind of like sort of sent me your own, which I'm like, you know, <laughs> I kind of like this, so <laughs> let's go off of this. <laughs> so so my outline is very much based off of yours, just so you know. Nice, nice, nice. Film Noir, yes, for, it is Noir, noir Vember. <laughs> I did... I did a Noir Vember episode last year. It was more of a mini episode, and it's nice to actually have a guest to discuss it with this time around. And as someone who loves film so noir, we're talking film pretty noirs. much as much as I do. Mm, mm. It's it's a, it's a genre that both uh, as an audience I adore, and then as like a filmmaker, I'm dying to try. But it's really hard to do well because it's so so much iconography that you don't want to do like the cliche version of it. And that, that's a really easy like thing to fall into as well it's because there's like so many like tropes so many um visual cues that if you lean too heavily into that it'll be like um potentially self-parody yeah and i think it's interesting because a lot of people's reference for film noir almost comes from the parodies of film noir like like our gen like our generation like gen y uh, sorry uh, gen gen y that's the millennials yeah god um the letters just blend into one another. Uh, we so much of our reference for film noir growing up was the parodies of film noir. So, like, I I was thinking about this yesterday in the lead up to the podcast. I was like, when did I first sort of understand the concept of a film noir? And I almost think it was from Whose Line Is It Anyway? They they do one of their bits that they do is like the film noir sort of scenario where then they'll stop and then they monologue to camera and then they come back and it's that noir voiceover and the band plays the jazz thing so it's all the tropes but it was just it was fascinating that to see that yeah it would come up like a lot in like cartoon shows that i would watch up watch as a kid i'm pretty sure looney tunes probably had a bunch of film noir in it animaniacs for sure oh yeah um And one of the first questions that came up, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is does film... I know IMDb lists it as a genre, but is it really a genre per se? Well, it's a fascinating discussion. I learned, I didn't realize... I thought it was a genre growing up. Um, and then when I got to film school, I realized that there's like a huge... In the film theory, like academic sphere, there's a huge debate as to whether or not film noir is a genre or it's an era of film, um, which is interesting to me i personally think it's a genre because it's a genre in the same way that musical is a genre to me because genre like musicals aren't the same thing you can have like you can line up three musicals and they could be the most polarized opposite end there's like a miserable drama there's a happy-go-lucky thing there's something really weird it doesn't sort of fit into one category and i think noir's a little bit like that um do you think what do you think so for me, it's like sort of, it's a, it's a complicated thing for me. Like, <laughs> I don't think these filmmakers in the, the 40s, 50s were going out and saying, I'm going to make a film noir because the terminology for that didn't exist yet. What I think yeah. is you had a bunch of filmmakers who came from Europe and were bringing the same kind of like filmmaking styles and sensibilities to the United States to tell these like really dark stories because they really do encompass all different kinds of genres. You have your crime you have um, mystery, thriller, horror even. Uh, shout out to Night of the Hunter, uh, oh, which is yes. one of the best ones in my opinion. There's all of that. And I feel like when we're talking about neo-noir on that, it's like, well, now you are actually actively trying to create that aesthetic. 
And I feel like neo-noir counts more as a genre, whereas film noir would be the era, if that makes sense. Oh, that's fascinating. I like that theory. Um, I had a great... I got this pull quote from Martin Scorsese, because of course... Um, Shout out to Killers of the Flower Moon in the box in in the cinemas at the moment. I uh, incredible incredible piece. Um, but he had a really f- interesting quote. He says, and I'm and this is I'm just reading the full quote out here because my words don't compare to Scorsese's. He goes, uh, "Film noir was not a specific genre like gangster films, but a mood. For example, Edgar G. Ulmer's 1945 noir Detour only established some of the most vibrant styles by relying on his resourcefulness. He shot the entire film within six days with a budget of merely twenty thousand dollars. There were severe limitations, yet he made a crime thriller with intense drama. One of many reasons why Ulmer has become such an inspiration over the years to low-budget filmmakers. He could not even afford any special effects. Instead, he repeatedly let some shots go in and out of focus to establish." the idea that his protagonist is going through turmoil. Film noir spoke of how quickly a man could lose everything if he deviated from his path. Um, and I thought that was just a really nice sort of summation. Like, it's a mood, which I like that. Because you can have... We'll talk a little bit later about, like, the Coen brothers, who all their films are ostensibly noirs, masquer- like, other films masquerading as noirs. It's this very strange sort of thing. But I think it's interesting how a lot of them deal with... We talk about tropes, but there's sort of like this... And I think it's interesting that Scorsese talked on it because they talk about... Sin seems to be like a really big common thing, a, a biblical sin, you know. There's always, there's there's murder, it's infidelity, it's, you know, transgressions from the societal norm. And they get really dark too. Like, darker yeah. than you would expect in the 1940s, where it's just like, you are following protagonists while they do, like, not just, like, crimes, but, like, you're straight up follow your protagonist is murdering people. Yeah. 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 And they came from, they were birthed from like two things. As far as cinema goes, there was all of these trade, these paperback, these pulp fiction novels, which is where pulp fiction gets its title from. Um, these crime novels that were sort of, they're like the airport novels of today, like your Clive Cussler and all that. At that day, there was all these sort of crime novels that were like a hundred or so pages long. They're about, you know, bad people doing bad things or good people slipping into doing bad things. Um, and they were kind of cheap to buy the rights for, but so it was based off something. And, you know, we think of um, film noir, a lot of these very big and well-known ones. So you have something like The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart or um, The Big Heat, uh, directed by Fritz Lang, um, or even Double Indemnity, which we'll talk about in more detail. I just rewatched that last night and it was like, it's such a, it's such a perfect movie. Um, but you have those bigger ones, but kind of the core of film noir, the era, if you will, is that a lot of them were like B pictures. They were, you know, the side projects to the big glossy. There was the splashy melodramas, the big theatrical adaptations, the big musicals, the big comedies. And the the film noirs were added as the B picture to, to you know, because you would pay like what, 10 15 cents you go into the cinema and they would just be playing the whole thing on loop all day and the film noir was sort of the b picture it was the second one that you'd put after it um but so stuff like i have a couple of sort of deeper more obscure cuts to bring up there's um a movie called pushover uh, in from 1954 directed by richard quine who he really hadn't done pretty much anything, although his most well-known one is there's a movie called Bell, Book, and Candle about witches. There was sort of like a pseudo-inspiration for Bewitched, and that's sort of like his only other really well-known one. But Pushover, it a decade after Double Indemnity, and it's basically the same movie. 
<laughs> it's really, it's got, uh, it even has Fred McMurray in it. Uh, but it's the, it's notable for being like the screen debut, I think, of Kim Novak prior to her Vertigo fame. She's like the, uh, she's, I think she's the femme fatale. I'm not 100% sure. It's been a while, but, um, and I loved it. Like I saw it as just the Criterion channel had their noirs. And so you just go through. And I don't know, I kind of dig the, the, the scrappy sort of almost like cheap nature of like, just let's do a rip off of another thing with the same kind of cast, you know, uh, there's a movie called The Burglar directed by, and I just have to get this name correctly. This is Paul Vandelkost. It stars Dan Derea and Jane Mansfield. Uh, who Jane Mansfield people know. And it's sort of like a little bit more of a heisty one. A lot of heist genres became noirs as well. They're sort of the origin of what, you know, we know as Ocean's Eleven now started as these noirs about, you know, gangsters trying to pull off a robbery of some kind. And The Burglar's basically that. It's just this really, it's almost a generic plot, but I just, it was really slick and it looked really, it was very beautifully directed. There's a lot of sort of that classical staging that, you know, Spielberg has kind of made famous again, but in this era of film in the 40s and the 50s that's how you made a movie that was just how you directed that was the default sort of way of directing and so even the 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 cheaper sort of rip-off movies had this really you know elegantly staged quality to them uh there's another movie called i wake up screaming directed by and this is a hell of a name h bruce humberstone starring uh, betty grable the title i wake up screaming is strange because the movie doesn't suit the title at all it was also called hotspot at one point had an alternate title i don't know why but it's it's sort of a lighter film noir it's a little bit more um comedic a little bit more easygoing but it just has all these really beautiful like playing with light and shadows in sort of scenes there's like gangsters making deals in like underground gambling dens and they do all these cool lighting tricks that are just really fun to watch so i highly recommend if you can find that one um, and then the last one, which I think this one sort of deserves to be considered up there with your double indemnities, with your big sleeps. It's called Force of Evil in 1948, directed by Abraham Polonsky. Now, he was a victim of the blacklist, the Hollywood blacklist. So this was his direct... He'd done some scripts, and then this was his directorial debut, and then he got done in by the blacklist pretty much immediately, and then did not direct another movie for 21 years, and only kind of made two more pictures after that, um, which I haven't seen yet. But Force of Evil is sort of the epitome of film noir in terms of tone, in terms of um, themes, and it all it deals, I think, primarily, and this is the reason why it sort of annoyed a lot of people, is that it's all about the evil of money. It's, the Force of Evil in the film is money. Um, and it's draw, and it was sort of a very distinctly anti-capitalist message that angered some people. Um, it stars John Carfield, and Kino Lorber just did a really beautiful Blu-ray release of it, so if you can track that down, highly recommend. But that was just a couple of, like, the actual, like, B pictures that, you know, we know about. We've heard of some of those bigger ones, the Humphrey Bogart, you know, iterations of... Oh, the, Mel the Maltese Falcon is another... Everyone knows that movie. But here's, I just thought I'd throw in a couple of B pictures in the spirit of film noir being a B picture, you know, format. So during, during like, when everyone was staying home for COVID, I was trying to, like, go through and watch every Oscar-nominated movie for Best Picture. Didn't succeed. Got pretty close. I'm, like, in the early 40s somewhere. But there was this There's one, one film you'll never be able to see, though, unfortunately, is Unfor The Patriot, which is lost. Yeah, unfortunately. 
there was one film uh, on there that when I was like looking into like the information behind it, I realized um, it was kind of a big deal that that was a Best Picture nominee because it was a B picture and it was a Crossfire. I oh, really enjoyed that. But yeah, it did have that sort of like gritty, like low budget quality to it. Like it even looked like yeah. it was filmed on a cheaper film, film stock, which it was yeah, really good. Yeah. Very well made. Yeah, they, it's every now and then one would a film noir would cross over into like the mainstream and um and it would it would take the public by storm. It would I think that's why it has staying power is that there was enough of them that sort of wound up in the public consciousness that those tropes sort of solidified in our heads. And a lot of the ones that did make it into the public consciousness, something like Double Indemnity, um, which has the voiceover carrying it through. So that's where that trope comes from. Is the uh, I walked into a, a bar and she was looking there and I thought, you know, a dames are troubles and, you know, all that kind of thing. That trope comes from, uh, that comes from uh, Double Indemnity or it's interesting that um, as it moved in, a lot of the tropes that we sort of know as the cliches sort of didn't come until later. You have um, like jazz music being the driving engine. You know, everyone thinks of film noir and you think of that solo saxophone and the jazz piano and then the voiceover kicks in in like a smoky city laden thing. But um, there's a great movie called, and I've just got to say, uh, it's it's The Sweet Smell of Success directed by Alexander McKendrick uh, starring Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster. And that one had the jazz score, but most of them previously did like double indemnity doesn't have a jazz score. Maltese Falcon doesn't have a jazz score. They're these sort of more orchestral, like more traditional film schools of the time. And that's why sweet Cell of success kind of broke out is it, it was sort of undoing some of the, the tropes in therefore creating tropes that we now associate with that genre so thoroughly that we can't sort of separate them. Which is, yeah, it is kind of weird too, because I remember doing a film music class and talking about, they were talking about like how like jazz music started to get incorporated into uh, film scores around the 50s. Like, yeah. um, we would see it in like a streetcar named Desire. Um, yeah. So it does make sense that like later noir would incorporate it as opposed to like earlier, which would have that more like big, sweeping, almost over dramatic 1940s. Yeah. Uh, style of score yeah uh, double indemnity in particular and you can actually find that score on like apple music or it like the original score for double indemnity and it's really not what you'd expect for a film noir because it's quite propulsive it's quite string heavy but it's interesting where one of the cool features about film noirs being b pictures was that they were allowed to kind of get away with some of the more messed up more morally ambiguous even though it was the peak of the uh product the Hayes code Right. Um, there's a great, I've got one more quote and I can send you this link. It's from a, an article on fugitives.com. Um, but there was just sort of an interesting quote about why it, they work the way they do. It goes, uh, less money always meant more freedom. The B film world was often more accessible for experimenting and innovation. This is how directors of the forties found out they could explore more in a small budget movie than in any prestigious film with a big house. Small budget projects used fewer executives to monitor their work so the filmmakers could introduce unusual styles. In this way, all the Hollywood directors unitedly transformed themselves into smugglers. They cheated and somehow got away with it. It's just a beautiful little quote about it. And so you see something like, um, there's a, a wonderful movie called The Crimson Kimono, directed by Samuel Fuller. He's He sort of came up in the 50s and he did a lot of, a lot of crime pictures and... Um, he has his style is like 
incredible. He he was just known for like these insanely long takes, but not in like a Scorsese kind of steady cam way. It was like these really just unbelievably elaborately staged oneers. He did a really beautiful western called Forty Guns, um, which is sort of like a really um, it upends a lot of the tropes. It's it's well worth watching, and Criterion has a beautiful edition of it. But uh, the Crimson Kimono is fascinating because it's basically a crime picture set in Chinatown. So not unlike a, a good inspiration for the movie Chinatown that would come out in, uh, about 10, 15 years after that. But um, it's notable because it's a film with an Asian-American in the lead. He's the detective investigating the case. He's brought on because he has experience with Chinatown. He can sort of talk with the people there. And unlike how you would expect a 1950s Hollywood movie starring an Asian-American to go, he's not being made to put on an accent. He's speaking with just like an American accent. Um, and just like a regular, he's treated like a regular character in the film. He even has a love interest. He's like, he's got the main romance story. So it breaks all of these um, boundaries and these taboos and these mores that we sort of had at the time. However, if you do look it up, just know that the post is kind of racist. Um, I'll, I'll, it's 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 an interesting um artifact of its time because the poster I'll just show you real quickly the um it's it's him kissing the woman it's called the crimson kimono and the the tagline I'll read this out it's quite a, it's quite um bad but to give you context it says yes this is a beautiful american girl in the arms of a japanese boy what was his strange appeal for american girls a motion picture of startling frankness and vivid emotions. So the post is very racist, but the movie itself is like almost radical in the way that it was doing all these sort of things. And it was able to get away with it because it wasn't sort of like a, a main house picture. It was done for, uh, it was done for Columbia, which was a B studio at the time. Columbia was definitely, that's where a lot of noirs actually came out of. And that's where I have a couple of like box set collections of Columbia noir films. That's where like pushover came from Columbia a lot of those ones did, but it's a beautiful movie with a really, it, it's very um, groundbreaking in a lot of reasons. I highly recommend it because it's very good. It's a very, very good film noir. That was in 1959. So, yeah. Uh, there was one that was recommended to me, a, I think it was last year, and I still haven't had a chance to see it. Uh, Kurosawa took on the film noir genre. Was it Drunken? Is it high and low? I thought it was Drunken was... Angel or something like that. Oh, uh, uh, oh, I think so. I haven't. Kurosawa is one of those filmmakers that I have yet to get around to watching. So I've like most of. I've seen like Seven Samurai, and I've seen his first two sort of Shogun movies, but I haven't watched. Like I haven't watched any of the classics, like Rashomon, um, Ran, any of those ones. They are they're very high on my list, but I just want to sort of give them the time and appreciation. And I'm currently working through Scorsese's filmography, and then I'll have <laughs> got some more down the line. Oh yeah. He's definitely a filmmaker worth checking out, but I haven't seen this one though. It was it did come up like as like one of the film noir movies to like. Like it was a recommendation to me last year. I just haven't had a chance to get around to seeing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, Britain Britain was doing some interesting film noirs too at the time. There's um, they they a little little bit later into the to the era there was um, there's one that I've been meaning to watch. I haven't called Victim directed by Basil Dearden, and it's notable because it's the first film to deal with homosexual themes. It's it's a, a guy sort of who is struggling and 
is sort of being harassed and it's this sort of crime investigation at the same time. It has some dated views, but it's just notable for one of those ones that deals with um, a topic that was so taboo at the time. You just didn't mention it. You know, the word gay wasn't even associated with homosexuals at the time. But it's interesting. We think of like a lot of the tropes in noir. It's the black and white. It's the smoggy city. It's, the you know, the voiceover and the jazz. But you even have examples in the era, like during the 40s and 50s that defied those terms. There's a, a, a great film that I sort of gave you as sort of on the list of ones I bring up called Niagara. It's a Marilyn Monroe film for anyone who's wanting to know. She's the femme fatale of the picture. And yeah, she's really good in it. She's really, really good in it. Um, and it's notable because it's in bright Technicolor. It is one of the most, it's this lush, it's, it's set in like a, it's set in Niagara Falls at like a resort. And it's this beautiful Technicolor, bright daylight scenes half the time. And it yet it's still a, film noir it's it's it, uh i'll just get the the, the release date <laughs> niagara there we go niagara marilyn monroe 1953 uh joseph cotton and it was directed by henry hathaway who he's known for a couple of things a lot of westerns he did the original true grit that sort of thing but niagara is stunning i highly recommend it that uh, criterion channel did a a program of uh noirs in color and that was one of the ones I saw and I hadn't seen it before. It was just beautiful. So if you want to see sort of a noir that defies a lot of the tropes you know, but it's so like immediately recognizable as noir, highly recommend Niagara. That one's a good one. Uh, Leave Her to Heaven was another really good one. That was a, that one was like really twisted. Like, I love Leave it. Her to Heaven. I'll have to add that to the list. Um, so I guess that's a little like the 1940s and 50s. Do you want to, do you want to move to the, the neo-noir period? Because yeah. my understanding is like anything film noir that's kind of like sort of consolidated in the 40s and 50s. And yeah. anything after yeah. that would be considered neo-noir. Yeah, which is fascinating because I, I would still personally classify the very early 60s ones because it's not like 1959... December 31st happens and everyone goes, okay, right now, anything after this point doesn't count because half of the, you know, there's that movie you talked about, because I think I answered one of your, what are your recommendations from last year and um, experiment in terror, which is the, the, the Blake Edwards uh, directed sort of proto David Fincher kind of movie. And it was 1960, 1960 or 1961, but either way, it would have been being made technically in the 50s anyway. So I would classify, like, I get your first couple of years of the 60s, anything there I would still classify as, I think Victim too, the British one I was talking about, I think that's 1961 as well. And even um, like something like Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. Yeah. Even though yeah, it's yeah. a very experimental-ish movie, that, that's definitely like pulling from like noir. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the the fedora, the like he he adored Humphrey Bogart <laughs> so much, and that's why you can find that all through that. But I guess there was sort of like a lull in I guess when the studio system kind of went through its collapse and its fluctuations in through the sixties, and Hollywood had no idea what to do, and sort of it kind of didn't really. There's there's movies that were being made, but it kind of didn't really make a comeback until the seventies. Uh, when a lot of the filmmakers who grew up on the film noirs were now making films. And so you can see noir tinge stuff in every, like you can see it in Martin Scorsese's work, you know, like um, Taxi Driver is is for sure a neo-noir. Uh, you see it in William Friedkin stuff, like even something like um, Sorcerer or uh, 
French Connection, they're all kind of noirs, even though they're, you know, it's a little bit more action, it's a little bit more suspense, it's it, it's all sort of different things mixed in, but you can see the influences of noir on all of those filmmakers. And obviously the big one in, in the 70s is Chinatown, which is almost what most people sort of now see as the, not only one of the best films ever made, but just like the pinnacle of it's interesting that it's seen as the pinnacle of film noir, even though if you go by this definition, it's a neo-noir and not part of the actual film noir era. Definitely pulls from a lot of the film noir tropes. Uh, it has the femme fatale character. It has like all of the bleak, defeatist storytelling. Jazz music. Jazz music. Uh, <laughs> set in, did they even set it in the 1940s? Yeah, yeah. So it's technically a period piece to sort of help reflect that era. It's got, you know, there's the, the gumshoe detective doing like detective work. Uh, it's got a lot of those. And I think that sort of popularized in a lot of like noir parodies that happened afterwards, the, the detective always has some sort of, it's a bandage or a band aid or something very visible that some recent injury that is, is, is um, covered up with some sort of um, medical tape or something like that. And I feel like Chinatown started that trope. I know it was probably done elsewhere, but, you know, he has the, the cut on his nose and so he's got that big bandage that sort of becomes this iconic image throughout. The, it's like, honestly, to me, it's one of the best screenplays ever written. Unfortunately, it does carry the um, association with its director. Yeah, yeah, sadly. Yeah, well, you can't escape that, but... After watching The Kid Stays in the Picture and learning about Robert Evans and it's kind of more his movie, and it's like, okay, yeah. that, this, uh, we can shove that aside for now. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, that, the Kid Stays in the Picture is fantastic. I love that documentary. Oh, that one is also brought up. That... Uh, one, of, one of my guests brought that up in another podcast as their recommendation, and I yeah, nice. ended up watching it. Nice. Like It was so good. Yeah, it was in this sort of era that you sort of saw a couple, uh, towards the 80s, I guess, because Chinatown was 1976, 78, 1974. But um, you started getting a lot of the filmmakers wanting to try and remake noirs. And so there's the remake. I haven't seen either the original or the remake, but there's a movie called The Postman Always, Always Rings Twice that got done in sort of the, the 40s and then got remade as sort of like an erotic thriller in the 80s, I believe, because uh, I heard about it from the Erotic 80s podcast, which is where I learned about all this. Uh, and uh, Body Heat, you have Body Heat, which I think is a really good one to talk about. I loved it. I thought it was really good. <laughs> so my understanding is it wasn't officially a remake of Double Indemnity, but more of, like, heavily inspired by, but I'm like, eh, yeah, it's close enough. It's, yeah, it's pretty much, like, other than the fact that in Body Heat, he suggests the plot, and in Double Indemnity, she's the one who sort of suggests the plot. Other than that, and then, like, just being outright full of sex, <laughs> which they couldn't do in the 1940s, uh, Body Heat is just pretty damn close to there's like the insurance money scam there's you know all of these things that go into it so one thing i noticed about body heat that is it was un obviously unrestricted by the Hayes code so it was a lot sexier than uh yes. double indemnity uh obviously double indemnity for me was the better film but yeah uh, by a long shot I, I i think but it's very hard to beat billy wilder dialogue and Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler wrote the script for Double Indemnity as well, uh, which is which is fascinating because he Raymond Chandler, if for any listeners who don't know, was the 
one of the main guys who wrote books that all these noirs were based off of. So he wrote, um, he, he created Philip Marlowe, the, the, um, character who, uh, Humphrey Bogart popularized. He, he wrote, uh, did he, he wrote the long goodbye. He wrote, uh, the big, the big sleep, um, uh, not the Maltese, was it the Maltese Falcon? I think it was the Maltese Falcon as well. Yeah. He's sort of one of the big noir authors you go to. Uh, the other one is James M. Kane, who wrote the book that Double Indemnity is based off of. And and he wrote um, uh, Mildred Pierce, which is one of those fascinating, like it's part noir, part melodrama. I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. I actually, so, just, so good. I'm waiting for it in the mail right now. I got the Criterion version coming my way. Nice. So. I've got the Criterion one as well. It's, it's just a beautiful film. Um it's funny because I started reading those books this year, this past year, because I really want to make a film noir. And so I thought I'd take the Ryan Johnson route and go back to the source material. Like I love the movies and I want to make something a little bit more like the movies rather than just the books. But I thought I'd have a look and check out what these books were. So I've, I read, I read Double Indemnity. I was reading The Big Sleep. I read a couple of other, uh, other Postman or Razorings twice. Um, And it's fascinating that a lot of what we think of as the, the the noir voiceover is just how the prose reads in those books because they're all first person. You know, um, I, I I went up onto the lake and the, you know just all that kind of beautiful, um, almost crass descriptions of things that are very unusual, but they're wonderful. They're wonderful books. So I have I have also seen neither the original <clears throat> nor the remake for the Postman Always Rings Twice. But I have seen the Italian remake from the 1940s. Il Postino? Uh, no. Ossessione. Uh, I had to watch it for an uh, Italian film history class. That was very good, too. And yeah, still, it also was utilizing a lot of those film noir tropes. Nice. The audiobook of The Postman Always Rings Twice that I listened to was read by Stanley Tucci. <laughs> and I was sort of like, why hasn't Stanley Tucci done a film noir yet? He's so perfect. I mean, it's kind of, well, no, it's not a, that is not a noir at all. Definitely has, but he's definitely done the villainous, like, very twisted. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I was thinking about his character in The Lovely Bones. Yes, yes, yes. Brilliant work for him. He needs to play, like, a gumshoe detective. I reckon he would do really good as the gumshoe detective. Everyone, everyone always wants to cast him as the nice dad or the funny gay friend, but (laughs) I reckon he would do really, really well in a, in a um, gumshoe detective role. He could be the gay gumshoe detective. It's fine. Oh, yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> so that moved, like, so that was sort of the 80s, which then kind of brought us into the erotic thriller era, which started in the 80s and went on through. So you have something like in the 90s, like Basic Instinct, which is such a noir film. There's like the Venetian blinds. There's the the lush. It's almost like a classic film noir in that it's got the lush score is it you know it's the femme fatale to the most extreme version of a femme fatale character like very on the nose like (laughs) to the point where it's like one of the most like well-known things about the film um which after listening to uh you must remember this i'm realizing oh she was there there's she wasn't okay with that no she she wasn't she wasn't uh, it was jerry goldsmith the guy who did the score for Alien and and um, Chinatown, he he did the score for Basic Instinct. So there's that that um, legacy of noir kind of going back to the 90s, harkens back to the 70s, harkens back to 
you know, the 40s and the 50s. Just fascinating. I love Basic Instinct. Like, I understand that she was not treated right by the director and the crew on that. I can also say that the movie is fantastic and it's it's interesting watching it. I showed my boyfriend for the first time last year, I think. Um, and it's almost shocking how just in your face the sexuality is of the film. Um, and it shouldn't be because you're like, this is like 30 years old. This shouldn't be this shocking. And yet it is because so much of what the current era of cinema is, is lacking that sensibility of the human body, <laughs> shall we say. So, so in the 90s, you got... This is when the Coen brothers sort of um, became big or, or picked up. You know, they have with their Fargo and and Raising Arizona. So they were taking noir in very weird and strange. They put, you know, they paired noir with their weird existentialist take on life. Uh, I remember uh, hearing about Fargo and having it, hearing about it being referred to as like a film noir in white. Yeah, it's like yeah. snowy backdrop. Everything is in bright daylight. But I think something like Miller's Crossing was more like definitely more of a traditional noir. Yeah, I haven't seen Miller's Crossing or um there's one that they did The Man Who Wasn't There which I believe which I believe is written by um Sam Raimi or Sam Raimi's involved in it and it like and I've seen like screenshots from that film where it's like it's the most noir that they've ever done. It's in black and white. They've got the big beams of light and the shadow. I'm dying to watch that one and get hold of like a good version of it, but that's that they brought noir into like everything and still do, you know, something like No Country for Old Men is noir through and through. Even Hail Caesar, <laughs> which is like this absurdist comedy, still has, you know, it's the plots of the it has very fifty sensibility of, you know, the red scare and Yeah, they're comedies. They're they're, they're comedy noir. So the the Big Lebowski and um Raising Arizona are both comedy noirs in that way. And not in that they're a parody of noirs. They're just comedy films with noir-like rhythms. I remember watching Fargo for the first time and thinking, this is, is this a comedy? Because there's some, like, legitimately funny moments in it. And then, yeah. like, something terrifying happens and you're like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, so they do, like, really dark comedies. But then you look at some of the older ones and, they, you know, like, Double Indemnity has a lot of real good zingers in there. <laughs> you know, there's the bit where the, where, um, the, the boss at the insurance firm has his, like, monologue about all the statistics about throwing yourself off of the back of a moving train, and it's funny, or you have that, like, just really saucy dialogue, the, how fast was I going, officer? There's a speed limit in this town. So it was about 90. You know, like, just that... that Witty. There's a wit to it. Yeah, that's um, something I noticed in my last viewing of Sunset Boulevard, even. I'm like, is this kind of somewhat self-aware? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally... Comedy is sort of always in there, even when they were dealing with really... I think it was, you know, uh, you can postulate as whether or not they were like, oh, this movie's really dark, let's throw in some jokes for to break it up a little bit. Um, but I almost think the jokes come with the darkness. It's like that weird instinct we all have to laugh when they're at a funeral. And, like, everyone has it. And it's just this really kind of strange thing. When you're dealing with really dark and uncomfortable things, laughter is our way of sort of coping. Um, I've got the Coen brothers, and then I wrote... And to Nightmare Alley, which is a huge jump to go from, like, the 90s to the 2020s. Yeah, we skipped right over LA Confidential. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was a great one. But I do believe noir kind of was not in favour for, like, the 2000s. Yeah, even The Man Who Wasn't There was kind of like... It did pick up, I think, a couple of Oscar nominations, but it just sort of, like, got forgotten. Lost in the shuffle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, because that was 2001, wasn't it? Yeah, wow. Uh, but and you had like La, La, LA Confidential, which is fantastic. I mean, that was I feel like that was sort of the last big one of that '90s era 
um, Curtis Hanson directed. He was great. Uh, he did. There's a wonderful movie I saw. It was billed as an erotic thriller, but it's a little bit more like just a normal noir. It's very like Rear Window esque as well. Um, called The Bedroom Window, um, which is it's got. Oh, he's that actor that's always known for comedies, and yet it, it it's really good. I think he did it just before. Uh, I think um, Curtis Hansen did it just before L.A. Comedy. Yes, it's uh, Steve Gutenberg, Elizabeth McGovern, and Isabelle Huppert. So all the gays who love Isabelle Huppert, they will love this one. And it's sort of um, a, a man is having an affair with a woman in, a, in an apartment and they witness a, an assault on the street and they make a statement to the police to sort of report it. But that sort of idea of needing to be secret about the affair, but honest about the report causes many, many complications that ripple out. And it's a really good movie. And Steve Gutenberg is really, really sexy in it. It's you like, I have not thought of him as a sexy person. And then I watch this movie and I'm like, <laughs> right. Sometimes people That's will a... surprise you. Like, I don't know, someone online posted a photo of like Buster Keaton, like in a, I guess he did a movie where he did, he was like boxing or something. And I'm, I'm looking at yeah. this photo, like Buster Keaton was kind of hot. <laughs> yes, very, very, very. Um, but I think that was sort of like it then sort of dipped down and we didn't get like a wave of noirs. There's a lot of like, it's like the Western. Genres ebb and flow, I think is what Del Toro says. There's not like um, a complete stop of anything and not a complete, you know, rush of anything. And noir seems to be in, in an ebb situation. I think it still kind of is a little bit. It might, you know, it usually, you know, the film noir was a response to the Great Depression, so we may see a film noir boom in response to all of the last like ten years worth of events. I mean, and from time to time, you'll get one that will like be very in-your-face noir, kind of like Sin City. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost it's almost trading on in a good way because I love that movie. I even like the second one quite a bit too, um, which I know a lot of people didn't, but they're almost trading on the parodies of noir you know, in a way, but they're doing it with a love of the thing rather than just sort of um, making fun of it. It's not like epic movie or date movie where they're just referencing things. There's still a love of the genre coming through, even though it's sort of functioning a little bit more like a parody of a genre, aesthetically speaking. Um, but then you have something like Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, which is an honest-to-God noir. And it's funny because it's his first film without quote-unquote monsters, except when I, and I was like, oh, this would be really interesting. He doesn't have, you know, people in suits. There's no creatures. There's no supernatural elements. And I went into the film and I came out and I'm like, oh, that has the most monsters of any Guillermo del Toro film. It's like that one thing, it's like knowledge is knowing Frankenstein wasn't the monster. Uh, wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein was the monster, that sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's so... Nightmare, his nightmare, I need to see the original. I haven't... I was trying to get around to it, but I just got very busy this past week. I haven't seen the original, which is very beloved, but Del Toro's version is sublime. And it's, in my opinion, I think it's the best Kate Blanchett's ever been. I think she's better in that than she is in Tar, but that's just my very hot take. <laughs> but it's... And it's just dripping with beautiful aesthetic choices. It's It's all about money. Like, just the use of money as an imagery throughout it, you know, towards the end where there's like that blood stained piles of money in the office. I, that I think like, you know, I saw that movie in cinemas expecting it. Pretty much every Del Toro film is like a top 100 movies for me, just 
it's just going to be like that. And so I'm always interested to see where I feel about a particular Del Toro film, a new one in, in regards to the rest of his filmography. And it came out of Nightmare Alley. I'm like, I think this is like one of his best. But then I think about all of his stuff. But I think Nightmare Alley is very interesting because it's so different from what we're used to with him in terms of what the story and the plot is. But it's beautiful. I think it's Bradley Cooper's best work as an actor by a long shot. I think it, 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 but I think this blows Star is Born out of the water, in my humble opinion, <laughs> as far as his performance goes, because he's doing so much with not so little. He doesn't, he's not like an, because he's, he's such a secretive character. He's playing a lot of things internally and he's doing it beautifully. I, I adore that movie. I think it's one of the best films of the last sort of 10 years. And Scorsese even defended it. In, he wrote like a think piece article about how much he loved that movie and how people should show up to see it. It's a shame it bombed because it probably means there's going to be a lot less film noirs. Yeah. I mean, at least he got that Oscar nomination for Best Picture. So that... Yes, deservedly so. And production design. And it should have one production design as far as I'm concerned. I don't care what else was nominated. <laughs> yes, Dune. Dune demolished the tech I, I yes but dune's got another movie nightmare alley doesn't have a sequel so you know dune has another chance to win all those awards <laughs> oh i was gonna say because like the next thing you wanted to discuss on there was like the future of noir yes yes that's exactly right uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes it'll be interesting to see where it goes in response to global like real life events because we're seeing so much corruption out in the open we're seeing so you know in government levels in the movie industry in every industry in the financial industry we're seeing you know corruption as a big idea that's kind of going everywhere so it'll be interesting because that's what the film noir is about and so it'll be interesting to see how the genre responds to real life in that same way I hope I hope the future is very gay. Personally, I think I think you could have a comeback. I think I tweeted this the other day. I think that, that everyone's like, why don't they bring back erotic thrillers? And I'm like, I think the key to bringing back erotic thrillers is embracing queerness inside of them, not in the way that Basic Instinct had it as sort of for shock value, but embracing queerness as an aesthetic within film noir, within the erotic thriller. I think will that's how you revive it. That's how you make it fresh. That's how you make it feel of the moment now. What, as one of my favorite uh, musical numbers put it, make it gay. Yes, yes. Love it. Uh, the, uh, the producers. I love that movie. Um, I'm also like a big fan of seeing what people do in like little indie spaces. So I wouldn't be a Shane Anderson appearance on this podcast without uh, name checking a really, really obscure film that no one's seen that's very tiny. Um, but there's a really wonderful movie. I saw it when I was in film school because I was obsessed. I, when I first got obsessed with film noir, I was trying to just Google all the film noir things, and I came across, I don't know how I came across this movie, but I did, and it's called Yesterday Was a Lie uh, from 2009, so it is technically over a decade old now, but we'll pretend it's not. Um, it's written and directed by James Kerwin, and it's interesting in a, in a number of, one, it's a very scrappy, like, micro-budget film noir, and they're embracing a lot of the tropes in the way that, like, Sin City did, uh, with, you know, it's the black and white, it's the voiceover, it's the gin-drinking gumshoe detective, you know, in a bar, wearing a fedora, but it's a woman, which we haven't really seen. We haven't, I'm surprised we didn't really see it before. There's a couple of sort of versions of it, but, like, the full-on, like, alcoholic, depressed, you know, uh, detective hasn't often been a woman and it starts like a normal film noir and then I think you just watched it like last night 
kind of like dives into like sci-fi like yeah yeah it, it starts becoming a very surrealist there's a little bit of lovecraft there's a little bit of you know interstellar in there um kind of mind-bending sci-fi concepts because she starts investigating a scientist um i think that goes missing or does he get murdered it's been a minute since i've seen the film but and it just sort of twists and bends and it's a little rough around the edges as are most sort of like micro budget features and you know it doesn't always coalesce but there's something so charming about a movie that's just kind of gonna go for that because the indie film space is always filled with a lot of very similar films that are very they're they're intimate dramas about people going through it and they they live in houses and they're sad and 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 there are some really beautiful versions of that but i really love when like micro budget films and little films kind of go really hard on genre in really interesting ways because even if it doesn't work it's so fascinating to watch and there's nowhere else you can see that movie other than that movie yeah it's like the big swing but like on a lower budget which makes it even like more charming yeah 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 there's a charm to the lower budget version of it i think when i did the top 10 of the year i referenced um the dinner parting which still hasn't got a release which is a which is a bummer but that's sort of like a micro budget screwball comedy you know um which is really fun to watch and this one's the film noir version of that and it, it just i i had a lot of fun with it when i saw it in film school i thought i'd like discovered a little gem that no one knows about but if audiences are interested it is on tubi in america uh, yesterday was a lie uh give it a watch it's very well worth it i think i enjoyed that a lot um I'm also thinking, like, with the future, we are already seeing some of those trends today. Or, well, today, but also going back to another one from, like, the uh, mid-aughts. Ryan Johnson, I think it was his debut feature? Uh, Brick? Brick. I remember seeing Brick in theaters. Uh, Oh, wow. For me, me it was like, I I was on a Joseph Gordon-Levitt kick at the time, and I just saw that he was releasing a movie why wouldn't you be he is a dreamboat he is yeah and i'm like oh hey this is a high school film noir like it takes place in a high school following like teenagers but it's done so well like it's like a legitimate noir but like with teenagers yeah, it predates Veronica Mars, which is a good um, television version of the noir in the high school sort of thing. But Brick was Brick was it was interesting because basically Ryan Johnson for his filmmaking of that he basically said to the actors he didn't let them watch any film noirs. He only let them read the books. He only wanted the tone from the books that the film noir was based off of, uh, and, and inspired by. So they read the Dashiell Hammetts. Oh, sorry, Dashiell Hammett is the one who invented. He did the the Maltese Falcon, I'm thinking, but um, the other guy did, uh, I think he did um, The Long Goodbye and things like that. But he didn't let them watch any noirs. He wanted a a less ironic tone to it, so less of what we're talking about with, like, Sin City and Yesterday Was a Lie. Um, He wanted something a little bit more earnest with the noir genre in particular. And so the dialogue is strange and weird, but it works so well. I just recently bought it the Kino Lorba again, they're, they're a wonderful distributor. Um, I bought their Blu-ray. I haven't watched it yet, but I really want to watch it with Ryan Johnson's commentary. Cause he does really wonderful commentaries. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, even, and I'm seeing now more t- a push towards like strange, interesting, even surrealist, uh, films. And I know I'm going back even earlier than brick and like name dropping Mulholland drive. 
Yep, yep. Which definitely starts off as a sort of earnest noir and then goes off the deep end in the second, the, the final act, but in a... Classic David Lynch. <laughs> yeah, the most David Lynch way possible. David Lynch is also like very noir influenced in... Yeah, and Blue films. Velvet. Um... Uh, Lost Highway, also mentioned yeah, had... in, the, in uh, You Must Remember This. Yes, yes, he's he's a fascinating filmmaker. I, I, I find I don't always love the stuff, but he's always worth watching anyway, even if I don't personally love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a dead body rocks up, the investigation on the dead body. It's all those procedural elements before that. Do you know what? I wonder if that's why it's not as in vogue at the moment in cinema is because so much of the cops investigating crimes got eaten up by the CSIs and NCIS and um, all, that big wave of crime TV shows that sort of exploded in the early 2000s through to now they're still going there's an ncis <laughs> there's an ncis sydney that is just about to debut which is fascinating because sydney and australia does not have a naval criminal investigative service but uh i i know a couple of people who've worked on it and it's you know it's, it's putting jobs in here so i hope i i hope all the best for them <laughs> i remember like because i i went to college here in cal state fullerton and I remember walking onto campus one day and seeing a bunch of like Miami police vehicles there. And apparently they were filming an episode of CSI Miami over there. Oh, wow. I guess they wanted to use our swimming pool or something like that. Right, right. Oh, that's not, that's cool. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of fun. That is an interesting thought that that's kind of like where the future could be. It's like a mixture of what's happening today with I, like this sort of like putting it in like different kinds of environments that you would not normally see the genre in and playing with general filmmaking styles to like do something different in a way i kind of feel like something like who framed roger rabbit even which was kind of like a riff on chinatown in a way yes it could be a riff on it but be earnest as well like i think i think post marvel I think we need to go back to a bit more earnest tones. There's a not, if we take away that whole like wink, wink, ironic, we don't want it. We don't want you to think we're being too cringe or whatever. And I think that attitude's sort of not conducive to continuing interesting movies. And I think a more earnest approach, like something like um, Everything Everywhere, which flirts with irony, but ultimately it says, no, <laughs> the only way through is earnestness, which I really love. That, I, I definitely agree with that. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. And I want to have them answered immediately. All right. Um, so that brings us to our Q&A segment. And I actually did end up with two questions for today's episode. Ooh. So the first one actually doesn't have anything to do with film noir. It's just a more general question. It comes from Buck U. Dennis from Instagram. Uh, what movie turned you into a film buff? That's interesting. I watched a lot of movies as a kid. I was asthmatic, so I was sick, so I had to stay in all the time. Um, So I watched a lot of movies for ages, but the movie that sort of turned me from... It's the movie where I watched it and I suddenly realised, oh, movies can do that to you, and it's a whole different thing. And it then let me re-evaluate movies that are that, that I'd seen previously, but I just watched them as sort of like a general audience member. It's like, oh, that's a fun plot, whatever. But the first movie that sort of shifted my perspective was American Beauty um, by Sam Mendes, uh, which it's it's such a... You know, talk about surreal, talk about film noir. There's elements of that. There's the voiceover. It, it, there's a lot of Sunset Boulevard in 
American Beauty. There's he's he's narrating it from the dead. Um, he tells you he's going to die at the top of the movie. There's sort of this, and then you flash back, and it's a you know there's a lot of interesting elements to. There's a seduction of a kind in it. Um, I I don't know. It just transformed the way I thought about a like storytelling. Like I really focused on that the script had something to say not that it was a plot with characters and I like the plot and I like the characters it, it had some really rich themes that I really liked it had very queer elements which at the time I didn't recognize as things I was connecting to because Alan Ball's a gay writer um, as an adult I definitely recognize all of those things and it was beautifully directed it's, it is beautifully directed film some incredible cinematography from the late uh, Conrad Hall who trained um, Roger Deakins, who everyone sort of loves at the moment. He trained Roger Deakins. He sort of like, because he did what Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, his last film was Road to Perdition, which has some of the most beautiful cinematography ever put to film, as far as I am concerned. Uh, yeah, that, I love American Beauty. It's like, you, like you said, it does have like a noir sensibility, but also like a Douglas Sirk sensibility mixed into yeah. it with mo- late 90s angst. Like... Yeah, and it all yeah, just yeah. kind of like came together beautifully. The cinematography, Thomas Newman's uh, amazing score. score, score. It's that's the first time I was like, this is one of my all-time favorite scores, and I listened to it like on repeat over and over. And you saw it ripped off every like the entire of House just kept ripping off the American Beauty score because <laughs> I believe I believe Thomas Newman composed the music for the pilot. Um, that's how much they were like, yes, this movie is incredible. It, it, it's a shame that these days it's coloured by its star, you know, and especially because the plot, the plot itself is a little referential to some of those uncomfortable things. So I understand if people sort of want to put it aside, um, but I, I, I think it's, it's like, as a film, it's, it's a genuinely incredibly made film. And that was the first one that really, I guess, turned me into a film buff where I spoke about the filmmaking rather than just the story and the characters. And Alan Ball, just an inc- incredible writer. Like even his TV so script, good. uh, six, six feet, feet under, under, very good. True blood up until the final season. And honestly, actually, no, even the final season, I just didn't True like the ending. True Blood 1 to 4. True Blood 1 to 4 yeah. is, is a safe bet. <laughs> I didn't like the ending. That's what it was. So this one, it comes from friend of the show, Clark Silva, from our Phantom of the Opera episode. How many times do you think the main guy in Double Indemnity says, baby? <laughs> I was just thinking of this as I watched it last night. I was like, is it baby? Da-da-da-da-da, baby. That's a good drinking game. Take a shot every time he says, baby. Take a shot every time he says baby. Take a shot every time Barbara Stanwyck is clearly plotting with her eyes. It was really fun to reevaluate that and watch because on the page she doesn't have a... She has a, like, good dialogue and repartee with him, but as far as, like, outwardly appearing to do things, her character doesn't look like much. However, when you spend the movie... Because I'd seen the movie before, so I'm, I'm watching other things in the frame rather than the main plot. And when you watch her in scenes where she is not talking, it is absolutely fascinating. She is doing so much more than what's on the page. It's a really good performance. I think it's one of her best. If I can change, я думаю, что каждый тоже изменился. And you can change. Вы можете измениться. Everybody can change. Каждый может измениться. And now this is going to bring us to our rotating segment. And just like uh, last time, uh, we're going to be doing reappraisals, which I'm good with because I actually haven't done reappraisals in a while. That's fascinating because I love reappraising films that seem to have just been dismissed off the cuff. Um, today, I, I went through my shelf and I was like, which film? Because I have so many things that I could reappraise. 
Um, I think last 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 time I did Our Brand is Crisis, um, the Sandra Bullock one, the really, it, it's criminally underrated. I don't know why that movie was so thoroughly hated the way it was. So, but I, I went through my shelf and I was looking at all the different ones. There's so many, but I thought I'd pick a comedy this time. Uh, there is a wonderful movie called The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. Oh my God. I remember that movie. Which is a comedy about magicians, and the cast is ludicrous. It's Steve Carell, um, uh, uh, Jim Carrey, and Olivia Wilde, and Steve Buscemi. And it's about, like, magicians competing for who's, like, the most in, in hot-for-the-moment kind of magician. And you have Steve Carell, who's sort of like an old-school David Copperfield type. And Jim Carrey's, like, the David Blaine stunt magician who does the most ludicrous things. And... Olivia Wilde is Steve Carell's like assistant who wants to be a magician herself, and Steve Car- and um, Steve Buscemi is the is the mentor, the old old magician who's sort of on his way out. And I was sort of looking this up because I, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that one not being quite critically well regarded. Um, it's got something like twenty something percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It was considered very like blech. It tanked at the box office. It did not make its. It had like a budget of thirty million dollars, and it didn't make. It made like twenty five. So it was a huge disappointment that the box office got summarily dismissed. And I think it's genuinely hilarious. Like, it is such a good companion piece to all those 90s... Like, a lot of Jim Carrey's comedy movies that we grew up with, stuff like Liar Liar, stuff like um, The Mask or, or, or Me, Myself and Irene, it's of akin with those films. It's this big studio comedy with a high concept and wacky antics and a ludicrous plot that is completely unrealistic, but that's kind of beside the point. But it also has a lot of heart to it. It actually has like a tremendous amount of heart with Olivia Wilde's character and her story. And I think it needs reappraisal because it is like I've watched it multiple times now. The the the, the measure for a comedy for me is whether or not it holds up on rewatch. Because if you, you, a comedy can be you know funny in the moment, and then once you know the joke, it's no longer funny. Um, and good comedies surpass that they are still funny you look forward to the punchline that you know is coming rather than what is the punchline and this one holds up on rewatch i rewatch it you know every couple of years i showed it to my boyfriend um two or three years ago uh he laughed himself stupid he thought he had a great time with it and he doesn't like american comedy as much he's much more of a british comedy fan so you know it's good when he likes the american comedy um it's great i think it's criminally underrated it needs revisiting it needs reappraisal it's so good yeah, I remember enjoying it when I saw it the first time, but I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, so I probably should give it another look. Give it a rewatch, and if your boyfriend hasn't seen it, it's just a great, like, if you need, like, a funny Saturday night movie, 100%. It's so good. It's so funny. I own it on Blu-ray because it's just, it's it's a great movie. All right, so where can we find you on social media? Oh, good. Uh, you can find me on tw- X... <laughs> at that that one's okay to dead name it's fine (laughs) Uh, i'm on twitter at shane m underscore anderson uh i'm on instagram at it's 24 frames but the t is a number two um but you're better off following my podcast one season wonders uh there's a couple of podcasts with the same title but mine's the newest one and it's we're on twitter and instagram at one season pod or you can email us at oneseasonpod at gmail.com if you want to say anything. Suggest a show. I don't know. I've got a huge list, but every now and then I come across something I've never heard of before. And we're episodes airing fortnightly. So episode one's out at the moment. 
which you can check out. Episode two comes out next week and we'll be releasing episodes up until Christmas. Then I might take a break while I record more because it takes time to research this show because because the the fun thing is that with these shows that got cancelled um i say fun it's the opposite of fun Uh, the shows that got cancelled is that there's not a lot of writing about them no one cared about them so no one wrote about them so you have to really frankenstein together the details of production from like tiny little snippets in a hundred different articles to pull together an actual timeline of how the how the show or whatever got made um unless you're like firefly or freaks and geeks but i'm sort of intentionally avoiding those shows only because I don't think I can add anything to that conversation. So my sort of mission, much like bringing up something like yesterday was a lie is to talk about some stuff that people definitely won't know and might want to check out. They might have a bit of fun with, um, we, we say, uh, I say in the intro, it's uh, our only hope is to bring to light some underseen gems to try and speak with some of the people who were there when they were made. And maybe in our own little way, we can uncancel these little slices of wonder. So that's our little mission statement that we say at the top of every episode. Yeah. The first episode was very good. I very much enjoyed it. I never even heard of Enlisted, but that seems like a show that I would probably enjoy. It is so good. If you like stuff like Community or um, Parks and Rec, it's 100% up that alley of the, even like um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, all of those sort of shows are very much up that alley of Enlisted and it's got a lot of heart to it. It's like a really like genuinely moving show at the same time. Highly recommend it. And you can hear all about it on our podcast. So, And also like uh, my boyfriend and I did get to go to uh, Hollywood a couple weeks ago to see a brand new short that you made called Sonos. Oh. Sonos, yes. It's a, it's a little horror short about some haunted audio cassettes for anyone who still remembers what those are. <laughs> Um, I remember trying to record my own audiobooks on cassettes when I was a kid so I could listen to them while I went to sleep. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, some haunted audio cassettes and a buyer and a seller. And it's, a, you know, it's an interesting little short film. It's doing pretty well. We just had a big gala screening um, at the Brisbane International Film Festival. And I've got a couple more festivals to hear back from. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I, I guess I'll post about that. So if you follow me on Twitter, you'll and it eventually comes out online and you'll be able to watch it that way. Um, I was also fortunate enough to see, um, since you like to plug like smaller things that not a lot of people may have heard of, I actually was fortunate enough to get to see a Filipino animated film called The Missing. Oh yes, I saw you post about that. Uh, that was, it's like rotoscope style animation mixed with some traditional animation. Interesting, it's like sci-fi drama, but touches upon like how people cope with repressed trauma. Right. So it's. I thought it was very well done. Um, very interesting storytelling. The animation is gorgeous. Mm, the uh, screenshots you've put up look really fascinating and interesting. Yeah, and they do like these visual things, like these these visual cues with it that are. Yeah, it's hard to describe it without spoiling anything. But right, right. Yeah, it's a it's a very good film, and they, I, my understanding is it's the Philippines' submission for. Uh, the the Academy Award for International oh, Feature. Oh, wonderful! I'm oh, hoping they get it, but yeah, if, if anyone if you have the chance to see it, I do highly recommend that one. Wonderful! Yeah, love a good plug for something little. Yeah, little underdog films always fight for them. Always. The B pictures of of today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Of course, I look forward to listening to One Season Wonders, uh, the next episode. I was Thank actually you. kind of disappointed because I saw you post on it and I was like, all right, it's online. And then I looked again, it was like Wednesday. <laughs> I'm like, oh. 
I'm Perfect. trying to do that podcast thing where you like you make announcements and you do the regular posting so that people see the news and so I, it's exhausting I, I really don't like that I wish I could just just post when the episode drops but like you need to sort of maintain some sort of web presence I suppose yeah that's like hard to do especially since you know day job and all that stuff and then I I forget yeah. to do it I'm like oh I should probably post something on the main on the podcast account yeah, yeah I forget yeah. sometimes thank you so much for having me Chris thank you Love for coming to speak on. to you and for everyone at home, I hope you are not just entertained, but somehow reborn together.